Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, the 4th of October, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish, with me in the studio. Should I say back with me in the studio is Mike Robinson. And we're delighted to be joined by our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, we're going to get kicked off with uh, online safety bill. And the news from this morning is that the police have decided to raid the house of Lawrence Fox. So Lawrence Fox uh, put this piece of video out uh, just about an hour ago. Coming up the last now. What? No. Look how many coppers there are in my house. Look at them coming to steal everything, take everything out of my house. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the country that we live in. So the question we've got to ask is, is this uh, the police? This seems to be the second uh, similar type of uh, activity, Brian, since the online safety bill uh, passed. Um, and the question is, is this because uh, of that the police have got some, some kind of confidence to behave this way uh, since that bill was passed? But nonetheless, uh, as far as I'm aware, the only crime, if it is a crime that Lawrence Fox has committed, is to make a fairly disparaging comment on GB News. Of course, he's been suspended by GB News, as is Dan Wooden, uh, as a result of that. Um, I'm not clear what the criminal aspect or the potential criminal aspect of this is, but uh, he certainly has been raided. Well, Mike, you've been pointing out the online um, online harms, the online safety bill, and uh, of course, everything is very vague, and this gives the police um, all sorts of opportunities to come into your house, doesn't it? It would appear. But what he says is correct. This is the United Kingdom in 2023. We are very, very close to a fascist state. Um, so the question is, uh, how is the regulatory regime going to work uh, under the online safety bill? Of course, we know that uh, Ofcom is going to be the regulator of the internet, as they are for broadcast media. Um, so let's bring this on screen. This is uh, a comment that they made a couple of days ago on BitChute, the video hosting platform. BitChute improves its safety measures following engagement uh, with Ofcom. So let's just have a look and see what they say. In particular, they were concerned about BitChute's on-platform reporting function only be avail being available to users who had a registered account. Uh, and also BitChute's content moderation team being small and limited to certain working hours, which restricted its ability to respond quickly to reports that footage was on the platform following the attack. Now, of course, BitChute is a UK-based platform, and as far as I understand it, uh, what uh, Ofcom was concerned about was that their uh, moderation team only operated on UK working hours. So let's uh, continue with this. Uh, it goes on to say that uh, following our engagement, that's Ofcom's engagement with BitChute, uh, they are tripling the size of its moderation team by taking on more human moderators. Uh, they're increasing the number of hours that moderators are available to review reports so that it is safety team operational 24-7. Uh, and they've changed the design of their platform to allow non-registered users to directly report potentially harmful content. Ofcom goes on to say that BitChute is collecting additional metrics to measure the impact of changes it has made, including the number of content review reports raised each day and average response times to them. Uh, and it also became a member of Tech Against Terrorism in October 22, and is a member of the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. And of course, the reason for that is because uh, going right back to 2018 or so, um, terrorism was the original excuse uh, for, for the government or the original cover for the online harms uh, white paper, which eventually led to the online safety bill. Uh, so let's uh, bring Ofcom back on screen then. 
And they say that the current regime and the future online safety regime will focus on measures that platforms have in place to minimize the risks of users encountering harmful material. They say that it's not their place to decide what is acceptable in terms of individual pieces of content. But if such content uh, does stay on platforms, it, it may be indicative of an underlying issue uh, and so on. And they say that they will closely monitor the implementation of BitChute's changes and the impact they have to assess whether they result in tangible improvements to user safety. If we find that despite BitChute's improvements, users are not being adequately protected from relevant harmful material, we will not hesitate to take further action, including formal enforcement action if necessary. So we start to see how this regime is likely to operate. Uh, but uh, potentially positive news uh, now, uh, and that's this from Axios, um, and their headline is Social Media Traffic to Top News Sites Creators. Um, so this is uh, talking about referrals from Facebook and X, formerly Twitter. Uh, and if we look at the yellow line, let's zoom in on this graph a little bit here, and look at the yellow line, which is uh, referrals to news sites. This is mainstream uh, old news sites. Uh, the yellow line shows that uh, going back to 2020, uh, there were 120 million referrals to news sites. So that's, in other words, people clicking on links on the Facebook platform to take themselves to a news site. And that has dropped to 20 million or so, uh, 21 million in August this year. Uh, so this is what uh, they have to say about it. Uh, websites, business models, as news website business models that depend on clicks from social media are now broken. They're saying, and this is the irony, uh, it's regulatory pressure uh, that have pushed tech giants to abandon efforts to elevate what they call quality information. Um, so this seems to be an effect of the online safety bill and also uh, similar legislation in the EU. Uh, so maybe there's a positive side to this after all. Well, it's good to see that aspect, Mike. Um, but with regards to Ofcom, of course, who is Ofcom? Who appoints them? Um, what interests have those people got? These are all questions that we not only need to ask, we need to delve into it. And uh, uh, it was only, well, it was some time ago that uh, UK Column was looking at Ofcom, but clearly we need to get back on the case. But they've demonstrated they're going to be authoritarian and draconian in enforcing government policy to shut down free speech. Well, I'm going to say thank you to a viewer who sent an email with this. It says, uh, Swiss LGBT plus rights group hails 60 day sentence um, for polemicist who called journalist a fat lesbian. And then there's a second one, and a man admitting, admitted abducting politicians, but a, a Swiss court acquitted him. Now, the point being made here is the dual standards, but an additional point that I want to make is that we are seeing similar legislation uh, creeping across all of the Western countries, all of the European countries. So let's put a little bit of meat on the bones here. Uh, this is Associated Press and the headline is Swiss LGBT plus rights group hail that 60 day sentence uh, for Sorry, I'm having trouble with that word, Mike. Polemicist. Thank you. Who called journalist a fat lesbian. Now, that's an unpleasant thing to say. But if we get into the text on this, this was all two, uh, about uh, two years ago. Uh, he also called, said that the lady's work as a queer activist meant she was unhinged, according to the Swiss public broadcaster RTS. And um, uh, the comment that came back from Muriel Wagner, co-director of the lesbian activist, activist group LOS 
in a statement was, this court decision is an important moment for justice rights of LGBTQI people in Switzerland. And it's a strong signal that uh, homophobic hatred cannot be tolerated in society. So he didn't say anything too unpleasant. As far as I can see, he wasn't talking about bodily harm or, or that kind of thing, which occasionally, unfortunately, we can see on social media. Uh, but the, nevertheless, that man is going to be sentenced to 60 uh, days in prison. Meanwhile, if we look at the uh, secondary article here, um, uh, this is the one, the, the man in question admitted abducting politicians, uh, but a, squi a Swiss court acquitted him. Just Mike. to clarify, this is a completely different case, different man. Yeah, this is a different man. It's a different story. Uh, but on one hand, we've got a Swiss court giving 60 days for using nasty words. And this man who's admitted abducting politicians, this is in Belarus, um, the Swiss court acquits him. Now, it's a strange case because we're led to believe that it began with a former soldier contacting journalists in 2019, uh, claiming that he'd been involved in the dis disappearance of an ex-interior minister of Belarus. Uh, but during the trial, uh, he admitted being involved, but he said he wasn't involved in the murder of three men. Um, he was giving his, uh, his own testimony in front of daughters of one of the victims, um, but at the end of that hearing, he was acquitted. Now, we could say that this was a highly political case, but the key bit is those dual standards. 60 days in prison for using nasty language, but if you're involved in uh, abducting politicians and the murder of politicians, the same Swiss courts can let you off. Mm. This cannot be accidental. And I'd also just like to bring this one in, a uh, particularly unpleasant little story of a Pentagon official accused of dog fighting. And uh, they were executing dogs that lost the fights by electrocuting them. And uh, this uh, Huffington Post headline says a communication official in the Defense Department was arrested for allegedly running a dog fighting operation. Um, and that was uh, based on a report in the Washington Post. Uh, but if I come through to another article here from Fox News, a uh, picture of a, a dog in a cage, it's saying the two men used an encrypted messaging system to keep this dog fighting going. But if we come to this paragraph, we get more information. Frederick Douglas Moorfield, 62, served as Deputy Chief Information Officer for Command control and communications for the Office of the Secretary of Defence. So we've got a high-level official, nothing on the BBC, although the BBC in the past has made an effort to at least criticise dog uh, fighting. So dual standards, again, being demonstrated in this case alone by the BBC. OK, Debbie, let's uh, welcome you to the programme and move on to the MHRA. Yes, good afternoon. And thank you, my favourite topic, the MHRA, who, of course, we know are undergoing a transformation. But have we, the UK column viewers, are we transforming the MHRA? So let's see what the MHRA are all about, because they've just published their annual report and accounts. And you can see the normal stuff that we're used to, accelerating patient access to new medicines. Most of those are untested. The yellow card scheme. And we must ensure the safety of patients and the public. However, do you remember the March 2023 
board meeting when our friend and warrior, uh, Cheryl Granger, somehow made her way onto the board meeting. It was um, it was screened and I was in, in attendance and I recorded it and we showed it uh, on the column. I think it was pretty much the very next day. And since then, we haven't been allowed to record or take screenshots of MHRA board meetings. I wonder why. But um, let's remind ourselves of how Cheryl put Stephen Lightfoot before he resigned, put him on the spot in front of June Rain. So, can I just check, uh, Cheryl, that, uh, that that provides the information you asked? Uh, yes, there's just many concerns out there regarding um, the adverse event reports that we've had so far. So, at the moment, um, there's about one in 426 doses that's bringing a serious adverse event. And I, I'm trying to find out more information about that as to why um, that's not being investigated a little bit more. Um, okay. Well, I, 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 I think that's. I think we, what we shouldn't start doing is, is actually using this as an opportunity to talk around uh, all the specific details there. But again, just in, in response to that, Alison, is there anything else that you want to, to just to add there? Just to reassure that every single serious adverse event to a vaccine is interrogated and considered and analysed extremely carefully. And I think that if anybody looks at the narrative report that we've been publishing over the last two years, you can see, I hope, the huge attention to detail and careful analysis of every single report that comes through is incredibly important that we reassure the public and maintain the, tr the trust yeah. of the public in our surveillance of these vaccines. And it has been a huge effort um, over the last two years to ensure that we do understand the safety profile of the vaccine and that the benefit risk of those vaccines remains positive. Okay. Thank you for that, Alison, and thank you for your question this morning. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Uh, so Cheryl uh, slipped through the net there and put them both on the spot um, completely, and we don't believe Alison Cave. And um, that was March 2023. And in April, it was announced that Stephen Lightfoot, the chair of that very same board meeting that you just saw, was going to resign. But it was also said that there would be a campaign for a new chair would start on April the 25th, the day after the announcement. But we are now six months down the line, and we still haven't had the reappointment of a chair. But Stephen Lightfoot is very busy and you'll be reassured to know that a couple of days ago he was chairing the NHS Sussex annual uh, general meeting and just so that uh, you don't need to take my word for it I've also popped another little screenshot in and you can see him there bottom left in yellow um, he's there chairing the meeting. So who's taken over the MHRA board meeting and it seems to be Professor Graham Cook and he's been appointed as interim chair. Now his particular responsibility is providing effective strategic leadership of the agency but what else is Professor Graham Cook involved in and when we go to look at his conflicts of interest and I've just done this screenshot so that you can see a few, just a few of the conflicts of interests that Professor Graham Cook has. You can see that we have Sanofi, Pfizer. Uh, he just announced he was on Nerve Tag. He's Imperial College. And of course, the World Health Organization. And we know that the second biggest donor to the WHO 
is Bill and Melinda Gates. So you have to ask yourself, who is in charge of the MHRA? Now, um, Professor Cook, he's got his um, conflicts of interest online. They haven't been updated to the NERF tag because he has just announced that he's NERF tag. But you can see there, there's some companies involved as well. 30 Technology Limited, DNA Nudge, um, and again, Sanofi and the WHO. But let's see Professor Graham Cook's first board meeting. This only went up yesterday, so it's fresh. But I was very struck with his welcome because he wants to instill trust in the public. He wants to welcome us to his board meeting. So this was his first board meeting. Let's see if you feel welcomed after this message. For the people who are online, uh, remember that the board members cannot see the comments uh, and that this is only be, to be used to be seen by our communications and events team to identify questions and share those with the board in the public Q&A, which will come at the end. So if you want to ask a question that, that is not related to today's board papers, please do not use the chat function and contact the Customer Experience Centre. Uh, for those instead. Uh, please similarly do not make any personal or abusive comments in the chat as you will not get a response and you may be removed from the meeting. Uh, we do not tolerate any form of abuse or harassment towards our staff or our board members uh, by individual members of the public. Well, I didn't find that very welcoming and it was the first time that that message had ever been put out. But I've just done a couple of screenshots about some of the other members of the board meeting and I'm not going to go through them in depth, just freeze the screen. But you can see that we've got AstraZeneca, Novartis amongst many, many others. And the next screenshot as well, you'll see a few more conflicts of interest. But in particular, my radar is zooming in on Raj Long, who is effectively just an expert in pharmaceutical regulation, but seems to be driving pretty much all of the agenda and is also on the UK HSA uh, board as well. And then I went to Companies House just to finish off this segment. And I noticed that Dame June Rain has also handed her resignation in. She was a director of Saffron Underwriting Limited, which are a non-life insurance business. So if anybody knows any more about that, we'd be grateful to hear more. Okay, thank you, Debbie. And uh, sticking with MHRA, well, uh, as you'll see in a second, but before we mention that, of course, over the weekend while I was in Sweden, uh, the, the announcement was made for the uh, Nobel Prize uh, for Physiology or Medicine, uh, and the 2023 Medicine Laureates are uh, involved with, with um, the development of effective mRNA vac vaccines against COVID-19, uh, according to the press release. So the two gents that are, or the uh, lady and the gent that are uh, on screen at the moment, uh, won this award. Uh, and this was the MHRA's response. The COVID-19 pandemic affected each and every one of us, but through scientific and regulatory innovation and collaboration, we brought very uh, effective and very safe vaccines to the UK and uh, came through it together. So uh, June Rain not hiding the fact that it involved collaboration with the industry. Uh, uh, that is very key, that the collaboration continues. She went on to say this, uh, today, the world congratulates Dr. Catalin Carrico and Dr. Drew Weissman, uh, who have deservedly received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for the development of the technology behind the vaccines that continue to keep millions of people safe uh, around the world. And my question is, uh, are these vaccines keeping millions of people safe around the world? Uh, now, I don't think we've mentioned this, but a, a few weeks ago, uh, Dennis uh, Rancourt uh, and colleagues published this uh, paper, COVID-19 Vaccine-Associated Mortality in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, they're looking at the Southern Hemisphere, but uh, they're uh, making the reasonable assumption that uh, this applies uh, across the world. Uh, 
Um, and so let's just have a look and see uh, what they're saying here. Uh, so there can be little doubt. They say that peaks in excess uh, all-cause mortality are caused by the COVID-19 vaccination. So they're trying to address this question of multiple countries seeing excess uh, all-cause mortality in the last couple of years since the COVID pandemic was declared to have ended, uh, which means all ages fatal toxicity, sorry, all ages fatal toxicity by injection uh, of uh, VDFR equals, well, you can see the figure on screen there, or what that means is approximately one death per 800 injections, which is reasonably expected to be globally representative. And what they're saying, therefore, is that this equates to roughly 17 million deaths around the world, which could be directly attributed to mRNA and other vaccines. Now, he says, for example, that perhaps the one in 800 figure would be slightly lower in the United States where they didn't uh, use uh, AstraZeneca vaccines so much because they t turned out to be quite a bit more toxic. Uh, but if we just bring the latest uh, ONS figures for all-cause mortality on screen and look at the right-hand side of this again, because of course the uh, winter uh, vaccination season began uh, on September the 11th for COVID-19 jabs. And I said at the time, would we see a resurgence in excess mortality as a result? And we certainly seem to be. So uh, 11,838 in the week died in the week up to 22nd of September 2023 in England and Wales. Uh, that is 8.5% uh, above the five-year average. But if we look at uh, the breakdown of that, that's 19.2% above the uh, uh, five-year average in private homes, 3.5% in care homes, 4.7% in uh, hospitals, and 10.5% in other settings. So that's uh, we're starting to see this uh, creep back in. Again, of course, we won't really get a picture uh, until we uh, get a few more weeks' data and find out uh, how that develops. And of course, a key thing, Mike, is that the, this is not being investigated. And we just saw Alison Cave as uh, the safety uh, expert for the MHRA saying that all the checks had been done when we know that medical records of people who died were not even requested by the MHRA. Yes. So. OK, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You can join us as a member there. Your membership helps us out a lot. It'd be very much appreciated. And of course, we appreciate you joining the community. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, and we'll have an announcement on that in a second. And uh, uh, or, but as, in the, as I usually say, do share the material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and UK column extracts.co.uk. Now, as everybody will know, I was in Sweden over the weekend for the On Guard for the Liberty of Mankind event. Uh, it was held in a fantastic location, Johannesburg Schlott uh, in, near Stockholm, about 20 uh, minutes away from Stockholm Airport. Uh, and uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody that was there. It was quite amazing, uh, and particularly to the organizers and speakers. So, Osolia uh, Jirofi, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, Meryl Nass, Mary Holland, Michael Palmer, Sasha Latipova, David Bell, Taylor Hudak, uh, Marco Rika, Sonia Elijah, James Patrick, uh, Richard Werner, uh, Andrew Bridgen was there, uh, Philip Kruse. Uh, Renata Holzeis and uh, Wolfgang Vodark, there were a few other speakers there as well. But I especially want to thank uh, uh, Lisa Renberg, who was the main organizer, but also uh, Phil and Mark from Oracle Films, because they live streamed this Saturday and recorded the other two days as well. So we will have plenty of video uh, to show you in the not too distant future.
Yeah, excellent. Thank you for that, Mike. Well, let's just move on. So uh, tomorrow we've got this interview with Susan Smith going out. This is essentially about women standing up for the right to be women, amongst other things. So in Scotland, that's a particularly interesting interview. So stay posted for that one. Uh, we'd also like to give another reminder that those tickets, there are still some tickets remaining for uh, Alternative View 13, but very, very few. So if you're keen to go, get in and snap up those last tickets. And that's the 22nd of October? 22nd of October, Milton Keynes. Uh, so London area, particularly convenient for you. And uh, this one... I will leave to you, Mike. Yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to make the T-shirt, the MHR MHRA T-shirt, finally available for sale, for pre-sale actually, because uh, we'll we'll uh, it'll go up on the website on for Friday's news program, uh, and then you will be uh, able to pre-order that, and we'll have uh, stock within a, a week or two after that, and uh, so. Keep an eye out for it. And make an easy, hot statement. Yes. And uh, Debbie, very, very quickly, you've got uh, your blog. Yes, it's strange, isn't it, to see a green NHS England logo instead of the familiar blue. But yes, we have a green NHS website. The Beast from the East may be returning. What is a federated data platform? And why are we sending NHS staff off to war zones? And if you're a lady watching this and you're considering having the flu jab, you might like to know that you're probably more likely to suffer from a serious adverse reaction. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Now, um, we've had some interesting emails in and I've picked up on a couple of them. This one particularly caught my attention. It's an email that somebody sent to their MP, Kenny McCaskill, and uh, they're writing to insist that uh, Kenny McCaskill attends the debate on trends in excess deaths on the 20th of October 2023 in UK Parliament. And uh, this, of course, is being called for by Northwest Leicestershire Reclaim Party MP, Andrew Bridgen. So Andrew Bridgen, absolutely standing up to be counted. Uh, he is um, making the case in Parliament. We expect elected uh, politicians to be there to see what he has to say at least. But what have we got back from Kenny McCaskill? I've labelled it ignorance and arrogance in equal measure. This is his uh, response to the gentleman that had actually emailed him. Thank you for writing to me. I will not be participating in the debate. I do not share your views on Mr. Bridgen or indeed the issue. I welcome inquiries north and south of the border into COVID and will await their outcome. So this man is so arrogant, he can't attend in order to see what Andrew Bridgen actually has to say and what other evidence there may be. Right. So uh, I spoke to Andrew Bridgen about this over the weekend, and he is very, very keen that everybody contacts their MP to encourage them uh, to go to this debate. The debate has been scheduled for the graveyard shift on a Friday, as he calls it. Uh, so unless we put pressure on MPs to go, they will not attend. I think it's disgusting for anybody to suggest uh, that they uh, don't agree with Bridgen, so they're not going to attend at all. They should be attending, and if they don't agree with them, they should be explaining to them why they don't agree. Uh, but I think it's time for us to start putting serious pressure on MPs uh, over this type of behaviour. Indeed. Uh, well, let's reinforce that because this is another email. It's to do with Scott Mann, MP. And uh, people can freeze the screen to look at the detail, but essentially somebody is saying, why, why are we still supporting Ukraine, which is bleeding to death and it's taking the UK and indeed other European countries down with it. And uh, I just want to make the point that 
Uh, every letter to an MP is important and it does make a difference, but it's numbers that count. One MP to a one letter to an MP is very, very minor. A hundred makes a huge difference. And we've also said if you get any problems, write to the local party chairman uh, because they are very powerful when it comes to critici uh, criticising their own MPs and worrying as to whether they're going to be re-elected. Uh, we've also got this one. Uh, yeah, I just want to remind everybody that the interview that we did, that Vanessa and I did with Chris Williamson, uh, yes, went out yesterday. If you haven't seen it yet, please get on the website and have a look. It's extremely interesting. We're asking him about why uh, the anti-war movement is, uh, you know, of the scale that we saw in 2003 with the uh, protests against the Iraq war, why we haven't seen that type of response for Syria and Ukraine and so and all the other conflicts that the UK has been involved in. Do watch that and uh, he needs support. Okay, thank you for that. Well, we just uh, briefly mentioned the subject of Nobel Peace Prize again, because according to the Ukrainian World Congress article, Zelensky is in with a chance. Well, is he? If we have a look at the article itself, he's amongst the uh, 2023 Nobel Peace Prize candidates. Um, he is amongst the bookmakers' favourites, uh, but his victory is unlikely, experts say. I find this interesting because, of course, bookies are very clever people when it comes to odds, uh, but apparently there are journalists saying he's not going to make it. So what's the reality of the war in Ukraine? Well, I'm just going to use this clip by Senator Josh Hawley uh, to make a statement about uh, what's been happening in the background, and then we'll do a brief summary. How was, how was the meeting with uh, Zelensky, and did it change your mind at all? Well, no. I mean, what, what the meeting revealed to me is, is that in the words of, the, of uh, President Zelensky, the, the conflict is a total stalemate. That's what he said. Totally frozen, I believe, was, was what his words were, which is also what the administration told us yesterday. The administration told us yesterday they want to spend $100 billion more, our money, more, over the next year in the hopes that it will remain a stalemate. Which leads me to ask, what, what is the goal here for the United States? I mean, what, what is it this administration wants to do? I have no earthly idea. They used to say, victory, victory, victory. Now it's stalemate forever. In fact, yesterday, Milley said, there will be no military victory. Okay, well, so what are we doing? I have no idea. So that was a pretty heartfelt clip, and it was very informative. Uh, he's saying that the American leadership have no idea what they're doing, but that the conflict is frozen. Is that actually the case? Let's uh, do a little bit of this is UK comment, UK column comment and analysis, uh, but it's based on a lot of very good work by many of the analysts uh, online. So let's just have a look at this overall image. Um, I've taken this from the Free Russia channel. I try and share the information from the various online analysts. Uh, but Mikhail, um, who is Russian himself, but he, he's basically run away from the Russian system. So he's talking um, as an independent person. Uh, but on his channel, he's showing another appalling image of Ukrainian armor, which is simply destroyed by anti-tank weapons the moment it gets clear of the tree line. And what is happening across U uh, Ukraine is that Ukrainians and the Russians are occupying the tree lines and fighting. But this is the big lie that we've got a frozen conflict, because let's look at what's really happening. Uh, basically, the U Ukrainian forces 
are being ground down. They're being destroyed where they stand, and they have made no significant advances in the in the offensive. Russia has already retaken more territory than Ukraine has captured in the offensive. All the amounts are very small. The reality is that Russia, on, who is on the defensive, has still taken more territory. Uh, Ukraine's armoured attacks are being decimated to the extent that they've been abandoned on many of the sections of the front because the vehicles are destroyed the moment they start to move. Ukraine's infantry attacks are suicidal and the losses are horrific. Some people are talking about 17,000, 19,000 men killed in September alone. Ukraine is again short of major weapons and ammunition. That's a fact. Russia is destroying Ukrainian infrastructure now. That includes key strategic bridges and command and control centers. And uh, Western support for Zelensky and Ukraine is clearly fragmenting. But the real uh, monster in the room, the elephant in the room, is that the Russian strategic reserves are not yet even committed to this battle. So frozen conflict, no, uh, because the Ukrainian troops are being slaughtered. But of course, NATO, the West, UK, US, BBC do not want to talk about this. Now, if we have a look about how the propaganda machine works, uh, we're back on the Ukrainian World Congress. Here's the headline, EU from Lisbon to Luhansk, uh, highlights of EU ministers meeting in Kiev. And uh, if we look at the, the, the right-hand side of the screen, you can freeze that, look at the detail. But I just wanted to pull out this statement. The European Union will soon expand from Lisbon to Luhansk. Uh, this is the German for, uh, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock speaking, and she stated this during an informal meeting of EU foreign ministers in Kiev. So the European Union expanding eastward, which of course is uh, part of the immense problems that the Russians have with this. This is part of a more detailed comment. Ukraine's future lies in the European Union and our community of freedom and it will soon stretch from Lisbon to Luhansk. It, Ukraine, also broadens its path to the EU with every village, every metre that it liberates and every metre where it saves its people, except it's not saving them from brutality and corruption, uh, which we are seeing more and more reports about. Um, now, let's uh, just compare Miss uh, Baerbock with another lady. Uh, let's bring her up on screen. Uh, who have we got here? Oh, it's Mariana Spring. Uh, well, how are these two ladies connected? Well, of course, if you look into their background, you find that they've got one common agenda. And the reality is that they've both been caught falsifying their CVs. So should we trust the German foreign minister? I would suggest not in the same way that we shouldn't, of course, be trusting a word that the BBC say. And we just put a little bit of evidence on the German minister. Uh, this is Politico, one of many, um, many outlets reporting this instance. Uh, German Greens leader Baerbock under fire for resume inflation. Uh, that means basically fiddling your CV. And uh, this was a bit of detail. Uh, she, uh, where are we? She um, claimed membership of the German Marshall Fund and the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees amongst lesser known organizations in the CV available on her official website. And this was not true. 
So this gives you a bit of the backdrop of the circle of propaganda going round. But if we follow up on the Ukrainian World Congress, particularly offensive image from them, note the promotion of the gay agenda on the left of your screen, and of course a bloodied um, Putin on the right of your screen. Again, I'll give you the details so that you can freeze it. Um, but uh, basically, uh, according to this article, Russia purposely spreads Kremlin narratives in European Union countries to undermine their desire to support Ukraine. It then says that researchers of the, the Romanian New Strategy Center came to this conclusion. Specialists analyze half a hundred open sources in five European countries. Well, what is this organization? This is uh, the report. It's called The Clash of Tactical Narratives, Russia's Malign Influence and the Discourses of Populist Parties on the Russian-Ukraine War in Slovakia, Romania, Aust Austria, Germany and France. And of course, if we look at the organization, we can relax because it's non-partisan and non-governmental, so it claims. Uh, but if we delve into it and just have a look at who it's connected with amongst um, universities, which we might think are relatively uh, benign, uh, we come on this one, the Euro-Atlantic Resilience Center. And if we delve into that in no time at all, we find this, it's NATO, Euro-Atlantic Resilience Forum strengthening societies at sea on land. And it says that this is the second annual Euro-Atlantic Resilience uh, Forum. It's for a platform for subject matters from the government, business sectors, institutions, and academia to share experiences. Uh, who has put this thing together? Well, there we are. It's the Euro-Atlantic Resilience Center and if we get down to this comment, we find what it's really about. In support of NATO's efforts within the Alliance's layered resilience concept, the forum featured discuss discussions on global resilience while also emphasizing the importance of the Black Sea region for the transatlantic community. And uh, so this is to do with NATO. It's also to do with the Americans. And of course, this is the reality, the power of what drives the propaganda that we're seeing uh, circling back through Ukraine. Um, I just wanted to uh, bring Grant Shapps back on screen. Uh, Brian was talking about this on Monday, I believe. Uh, he had been speaking to The Telegraph on Sunday uh, in this article and had suggested that what was really needed was for Britain to move the training exercise from the UK to uh, Ukraine and have British boots on the ground training Ukrainians and so on. And I just wanted to uh, uh, cover a little bit of the sort of response to that uh, that we didn't cover on the news. So first of all, Rishi Sunak uh, backtracked for it, from it very quickly. Uh, the Independent saying Sunak insists no plan to send British troops for training in Ukraine here and now, uh, but doesn't say anything about the future. Uh, but James Cleverly, uh, writing in Politics Home, uh, had this to say, uh, if we don't stick with our support to Ukraine, if we send the signal that aggressors can prosper, then all the problems we're currently facing, those inflationary pressures on food and on fuel and political pressure that comes from having a conflict like this, they will just get worse, which is why the UK's, gov UK's government position is resolute. Uh, we make that point to all our international partner partners. This is tough and this is painful but we'll only be more tough and more painful if we falter. So there you go. Uh, we're going to be more uh, pain in the future, Brian, if we falter. 
but uh, let's look at what other people were saying. Uh, this is uh, a US Congresswoman, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, they're going to start World War III was her uh, position on this, speaking about the British. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave it to uh, Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, he's saying, the number of idiots in power in NATO continues, countries is growing. Uh, one newly minted moron, the British Secretary of State for Defence, decided to move the military, uh, UK military training of Ukrainian so, uh, soldiers into Ukraine. That is to turn the British military instructors into our armed forces' legal targets while being fully aware that they will be ruthlessly, elim ruthlessly eliminated and this time not as mercenaries but as British NATO specialists. Another fool from the Bundestag, the chairwoman of the German Defence Committee, with an unpronounceable name, is clamouring to immediately provide uh, the Taurus missiles to enable the Kiev regime uh, to hit deep into Russia's territory to weaken the supply of our army. Uh, they say that it's in accordance with international law. Well, in that case, the strikes against German plants which produce these missiles will also correspond to international law. Really, these halfwits are actively pushing us to World War III. And, you know, okay, that's come from Medvedev, but I cannot find a single thing to disagree with. Well, that's, that is the key point. You can't disagree with it because this is common sense comments. But uh, we are in a country out of control and we see in America uh, with Biden walking into walls that uh, we've got the United States that is out of control. And uh, it's going to be up to the populations of both countries to do something about this. Yes. Okay, Debbie, let's uh, come back to the UK then and uh, water. Yeah, let's look at water. <clears throat> let's remember that the United Nations, their sustainable development goal six is water. And what they say is that su sustainable development goal six is integral to the success of the 2030 agenda for sustainable development. So basically, if you can't get success with sustainable goal six, the whole lot goes falls apart. Um, but the United Nations have got a very flourishing water department and uh, WAPOR is 10 nations all building uh, more water capacity and clean water capacity. But it's the WAPOR is the Food and Agriculture Organization. Um, part of the United Nations. And indeed, in November, we're coming up to World Toilet Day. Uh, I believe it's going to be held on the 19th of November. There's a very sweet story about the hummingbird. We'll probably talk about that in extra. But it would seem that they want to identify, all of us to identify as hummingbirds. Um, and apparently, 5 billion people are living without safe toilets. Well, I've got news for everybody because I'm one of them and I live in the United Kingdom. And as many of you know, water, sewage and toilets, uh, for all the wrong reasons, are a big interest of mine. But what does the WEF say about water? Because at the end of the day, of course, it all comes down to money and they want to achieve it, requiring a public-private collaboration. But let's look in more detail about how they're looking at that. And they're actually citing Thames Water and the disaster of Thames Water um, because they, when they took over into a private company, they had to bear the debt of its own acquisition, leading to higher prices for consumers whilst driving the utility near bankruptcy. And you can see that there's been over 300,000 discharges of raw sewage into, into our rivers. But who's in control of water? 
So I went to look at the Global Commission of Economics of Water, who have brought out this report called Turn the Tide. And they basically say, again, that if we fail to um, on this water sustainability SDG 6, then the whole lot will collapse and, and we, must, we must move with urgency. So then I went to look at who runs this commission and um, I found particularly Professor Mariana Mazzucato, but also, now I'm so sorry, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name, so I'm going to call him Tharman, but I want you to take notice of both of these characters, Mariana Mazzucato and Tharman I'm just going to call him Tharman, who's the president of the Republic of Singapore. Now, just to give you a bit of context, we're going to show you a bit of video from the WEF in a minute. Um, this was uh, a year ago. And the first person you're going to see is Tharman. Now, Tharman is the president of the Republic of Singapore. He's got a really a, quite a, a wide pedigree, economist, uh, London School of Economics, Cambridge, Harvard. He's on the board of trustees of the WEF. He's a member of the United Nations. Um, he's also part of the IMF. And Professor Mazzucato, who is the second person you're going to see, she's an Italian-British economist and her pedigree or her CV includes, I'll mention a few names so that you get the context, University College London, European Space Agency, Chatham House, the, uh, the World Economic Forum, the European Commission. She's also chair of the WHO Council of Economies of Health. Um, she's also been an advisor for the Labour Party and she's worked the business, energy and industrial strategy with the UK government. So that gives you a bit of flavour. So let's see what they were saying, a very short clip of what they were saying about water at the World Economic Forum. It's not just equity in the traditional sense. We should all be very deeply worried when a significant part of humanity doesn't have access to clean water and their, their lives are affected. But it's also equity that goes hand in hand with self-interest everywhere in the world. Because if we don't solve those equity problems, we're all going to be affected. And that's what it means when we say it's part, it is now a global commons issue. Equity and self-interest come together when we want to solve the water problem, just like when we want to solve the problem of the climate crisis. They go hand in hand. And that shift in thinking is also necessary. Equity is everyone's interest everyone's self-interest everywhere in the world. Can I add something just based on what you've just said? That's also, of course, true with COVID, right? We are all only as healthy as our neighbor is on our street, in our city, in our region, in our nation, and globally. And did we solve that? Like, did we actually manage to vaccinate everyone in the world? No. So highlighting water as a global commons and what it means to work together and see it both out of that kind of global commons perspective, but also the self-interest perspective, because it is it does have that parallel. It's not only important, but it's also important because we haven't managed <laughs> to solve those problems with, which had similar attributes. And water is something that people understand. You know, climate change is a bit abstract. Some people understand it really well. Some understand it a bit. Some just don't understand it. Water, every kid knows how important it is to have water. When you're playing football and you're thirsty, you need water. So there's also something about really getting citizen engagement around this and really, in some ways, experimenting with this notion of the common good. Can we actually deliver this time in ways that we have failed miserably other times? And hopefully we won't keep failing on the other things, but anyway. 
So not many people understand climate change. Everyone understands water. Is Are they weaponising water? And uh, in the UK, of course, they want us to pay for all the uh, leaks and the sewage uh, discharges that have been going on. So probably £156 more on your bill. Um, we still have to pay the water companies. And for anybody that's interested, Channel 5 tonight, 7 o'clock, um, swimming in sewage. But I've got news for the water companies. We're not just swimming in sewage. Some of us are living in sewage sewage. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Uh, now, just moving back to health for a second. Uh, of course, last week we were talking about uh, the new uh, UK-based vaccine deal, the fact that the UK Health Security Agency had agreed a deal for millions of life-saving vaccines to be produced in Liverpool uh, by CSL Sakaris uh, for flu. Uh, so we were talking about that last week. Well, the UK HSA has now uh, released their winter briefing, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of the points from it. They say that they are urging vulnerable groups to take up the flu vaccine, as data shows last year's programme prevented around 25,000 hospitalisations in England. So that's good news. But of course, you would want people to take up the flu vaccine if you just spent a shed load of money uh, on a pre-purchase agreement uh, with a, a UK-based vaccine company. But they went on to say it's possible the seasonal uh, H1N1 virus could return to the UK where it has had limited circulation since 2019 because we all know that Corona uh, shooted away, it disappeared for two years, uh, after which measures they say to control the COVID-19 pandemic virtually eliminated the spread of all flu. So they're trying to take credit for it. Uh, they went on. They then went on to say that the schools programme also began in early September with those aged four years up to those aged 16 year, years being offered a nasal spray vaccine or an injection if nasal spray is uh, unsuitable. And they say it's important that young people take up the vaccine as it protects the child themselves and helps stop the spread to vulnerable people around them. We heard this about COVID-19 vaccines as well, but of course that turned out to be untrue. Uh, but uh, other good news from the UK HSA, because they've joined up with uh, the Office for National Statistics to uh, run a winter COVID-19 infection study. So this is a study to gather vital data on COVID-19 this winter. It's been launched between the UK HSA, as I say, and the ONS. And this new study will involve up to 32,000 lateral flow tests being carried out each week, providing key insight into the levels of COVID-19 circulating across the wider community. Uh, this sample will be broadly representative of the population according to key characteristics. So how could we possibly go wrong? We've already gone wrong. Yeah, <laughs> we've already gone wrong, Mike. And that's uh, what we've got to get the lid off. Uh, but uh, GPs bullying their uh, patients, particularly older people, to get flu, uh, flu jabs. And of course, why do they want to do that? Well, they get paid for it. So uh, there's a lot, a lot of questions to ask. Uh, Debbie, let's come back uh, on to electric vehicles. Yeah, electric cars. Um, let's draw our attention back to uh, some where it started, really, which was back in 2018, The Road to Zero, which was written by Chris Grayling. I just want to remind people that there's plenty of information out there, including if you go into the House of Commons library, there's plenty uh, to read about electric vehicles. And what actually grabbed my attention was that not only are these very expensive, um, but the batteries only have got a short life and they are not, uh, they're a biohazard basically. They're not environmentally sustainable at all because nobody knows how to dispose of them. So moving on to the Guardian, despite a U-turn by the government just recently, there are going to be 
more new cars sold in the UK will have to be fully electric by 230. So despite what they've just said, they're still rolling on with that, that target. Figures from the Society of Motor Manufacturers in the Independent say that there are 267,000 battery electric cars were registered last year. But in comparison, that's 30 million, 30.7 million petrol and diesel cars. And in comparison, 1.1 plug-in, which includes the hybrid cars, cars are currently on our roads. But what are we to expect in Europe? What's coming down the car pipeline, if you like? So BYD are a, a Chinese car manufacturer. In fact, they're backed by Warren Buffett, and they're expecting to import 350,000 Chinese EVs into Europe. That they, they, Sorry, they already have imported uh, 350,000 in the first six months of 2023. But we are still besieged worldwide by problems. And we've got fires breaking out all over the place. And this next one's a Porsche. Uh, this is just to give you an example of Porsche in China. And then we can go to India, where you can see a small hatchback has been totally destroyed when it blew up. And then in Australia, they've had two large lithium um, iron battery fires, one at Sydney Airport and one at Queensland Battery Storage, which just shows you these batteries are very dangerous to store. So if you get your electric car, if you still want to have an electric car after all this, who's going to insure it? Well, and John Lewis aren't. They're absolutely not going to re, re, um, to reinsure it. And the reasons that they're stating is that they are 25% higher to repair than petrol and diesel cars, which I found extraordinary. And also, these batteries are situated on the floor of these cars, which apparently makes them very, um, that they, they can easily get damaged, even if you bump your tire. Uh, on the curb, they can get damaged. And most cars will need a new battery in their lifetimes. And these can cost, believe it or not, I was staggered, between £14,200 and £29,500 per battery. They're also saying the lack of technicians is going to cause a problem going forward. And thanks to Stephanie, our producer, she brought to my intention the latest rage that's going on, which is charge rage which is um, at especially service stations, uh, there are so many people apparently wanting to charge their cars and they can't that they're getting very angry. So they're even having to employ marshals um, to do this. So charging your car is not simple. It can take four hours or with a super high charge, it can take half an hour. And one mechanic who's Scotty Kilmer, he's a, a big YouTuber. He says there are so many uh, electric cars piling up at dealerships no one actually wants them. Um, I don't know if we've got time for a short video of Scotty Kilmer, uh, oh. but if we have, or if not, we'll go straight to Extra for a, for a video on Scotty Kilmer and what he says, and I hope it puts everybody off buying an electric car. Yes, we're going to have to uh, push that into Extra, if you don't mind, Debbie. Uh, so yeah. let's uh, move on with uh, this. Uh, the Foreign Office has decided to it's going to recruit many more armed forces veterans. So this is what they're saying. The Foreign Commonwealth Development Office will implement new measures to increase the number of staff staff employed with military backgrounds. Uh, the FCDO will implement new measures to do this, plans to encourage applications from veterans to the department and improve their chances of successful appointment. Roles are open to veterans in both diplomatic service and in jobs across the UK. 
This will include uh, FCDO representation of career fairs for veterans, the armed forces and promotion, uh, to increase take-up of uh, a guaranteed interview scheme uh, for the people who served in the military. Uh, is, this, is this just the government attempting to uh, do what they're encouraging other people to do, to give veterans a chance, or is this the militarization of diplomacy? I'd think the latter, uh, Mike. Uh, many years ago, there was a uh, report that came out of the US saying that uh, that veterans in UK in particular were seen as a problem to the government's long-term uh, social changes and policy. So it was suggesting that the UK government would have to take control of veterans here uh, if it was going to get its transformative uh, political policies through. So they were seen as a threat. I believe what this is to, uh, trying to do is to draw them into the system to help diffuse the fact that many people deeply concerned about the destruction of the nation state in the UK are former military people. Okay, let's move on to prisons then. And uh, the government has announced that, well, let's just read what they're saying. The average pr prison sentence has increased by 57% since 2010 and other sentencing changes have been made to ensure the most serious offenders spend longer behind bars. To meet this demand, the government has embarked on the biggest prison expansion program in over a century, including six new prisons to create an additional 20,000 places. Around 5,500 of these places have already been built in, and an additional 2,400 places have been created in the existing prison estates since September last year by doubling up on cell occupancy where it's safe to do so and delaying non-urgent maintenance work. But that's not enough. Uh, the Justice Secretary has now unveiled that the government will also enter exploratory discussions with potential partner countries in Europe to rent prison space abroad. Agreements would mean that prisoners in the UK could be moved to another country's prison estate, provided the facilities regime and rehabilitation provided meets British standards. The government will legislate as soon as parliamentary time allows to enable any future arrangements uh, and will require that conditions are to the same standard as prisons in England and Wales. So that's all right, Brian. Uh, you're being sent to a country whose language you don't speak, uh, but the prisons will be at the same standard as England and Wales. And that's a pretty appalling standard, Mike. So people are in for a very, very rough time. It's it's incredible what's actually happening. To suggest the UK is a democracy in 2023 simply cannot be true. Um, before we move on, I just want to mention while we're on the subject of justice that uh, we started off with Lawrence Fox having his house searched. At that point, we didn't know what the reason for it was, but thanks to someone in the chat box, apparently he is being associated with the damage to ULAS cameras. Uh, and so this investigation is about ultra low emission zone uh, and London. Well, he's been very busy if he's been running around London damaging thousands of uh, cam cameras. cameras. Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, we're going to end on the subject of uh, submarines and a, a Daily Mail article, which I just find extraordinary. Uh, it's by Mark Nicholl, the defence editor. Exclusive 55 Chinese sailors are feared dead after a nuclear submarine gets caught in a trap intended to snare British and US vessels in the Yellow Sea. Now, I, I'm going to say straight off that that headline I just thought was utterly bizarre. And I, before I comment further, I'm just going to stress I was not a submariner. My job was finding and tracking ultimately to destroy nuclear submarines in particular. So I was not a submariner. However, 
I have spent some time in submarines for short trips, and I've got some idea about uh, what's involved. Uh, but let's put in a bit of um, text on this. The incident happened at 8.12 local time. This is an exclusive report which has been leaked from the UK Ministry of Defence, apparently. 22 officers, 7 officer cadets, 9 petty officers, 17 sailors. The dead included the captain. And... Uh, the understanding of the uh, anonymous Ministry of Defence reporter is that death was caused, caused by hypoxia due to a system fault on the submarine. The submarine hit, quote, a chain and anchor obstacle used by the Chinese Navy to trap US and allied submarines. And uh, part of the uh, ongoing comment is that this resulted in system failures that took six hours to repair and surfaced the vessel. The onboard oxygen system poisoned the crew after a catastrophic failure. Well, if we have a look at a bit more of the Daily Mail's extraordinary report, uh, they have a particularly misleading illustrative submarine. This, of course, isn't an attack nuclear submarine. It's a bomber. It's a ballistic missile submarine. Um, but uh, they've got this diagram, um, which seems to me straight out of, um, well, I don't know, a comic. Um, but apparently we've got a nuclear submarine on the seabed entangled in some form of, uh, of wire net. And um, comment by an anonymous uh, Royal Navy submariner is it's plausible that this occurred. And I doubt the Chinese would have asked for international support for obvious reasons. If they were trapped on the net system and the submarine's batteries were running flat, which is plausible, then eventually the air purifiers and air treatment systems could have failed. But this wasn't a conventional submarine. This is supposed to be a nuclear submarine, and presumably the propulsion part stayed running. Otherwise, this would have been a nuclear incident. Uh, but he goes on to say, or she goes on to say, which would have reverted to secondary systems and subsequently and plausibly failed to maintain the air, which led to asphyxia or poisoning. And uh, the final rub is we have kit which absorbs CO2 and generates oxygen in such a situation. It's probable that other nations do not have this kind of tech. This article must have been written uh, by a child. I'm going to put up a big question mark here. Uh, I put a man in a canoe. I couldn't find an image of a UK submariner, so I chose a canoe. But this article is so ridiculous, it's unbelievable. And the Chinese at the moment are denying that anything has taken place. So was it a nuclear submarine? Was it a conventional submarine? And certainly highly unlikely that a nuclear submarine would be in water shallow enough to be using nets as a submarine trap. So I'm going to say more highly suspect, poor reporting by the Daily Mail, but we'll stay posted to see what, what else emerges, surfaces. Yes. Indeed. Okay, we must end there. Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you're a subscriber of UK Columns, stay with us for extra time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as always, a very big thank you to our audience, whether you're in UK or you're overseas. We can only do what we do with your support and help. So thank you very much. That's it for today. Bye-bye.